Lord, we do again thank you this morning, and we acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from you, in whom there is no change. So, Lord, even when we are faithless, you are faithful. You take care of us in ways we don't even see. So, Lord, this morning we take just a moment and say thank you. We pray that you would use these gifts. Use these gifts, Lord, to continue building your kingdom both here and throughout the world, that the whole earth may be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Make it so, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, please continue standing and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. And I have already had two or three people say they're looking forward to this. It's kind of interesting, you never know in some of the more minor books, and by minor I just mean shorter, they're a little more in the out-of-the-way corners of your Bible. You know, it's interesting to see who reads what, who likes what. And uh, 1 Peter doesn't seem to come up too often, but maybe it should. It's an important book. It's an important message for us here this morning. First Peter, I will begin reading in a very good place at the beginning. So chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And I will be reading from the NAS, but you'll find there's very little difference. And uh, we'll take care of that in a little bit. First Peter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Pray with me. Father, we are inadequate of ourselves to understand this. And this morning, even with help or an explanation, Lord, we will not understand it fully. We pray that you would take this message, apply it to our hearts, Lord. Each one individually according to their need, apply it to our hearts as we look into this, the, the word of God, the promise of God to your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Yes, I'm checking the clock already. I'm scared. No. No, we'll do all right. Any Monty Python fans? I have been threatened by those in my family to be careful this morning. You remember in the Monty Python, their most famous movie, which would be the Holy Grail. It's not, I'm not commending it. It just is what it is. But in one scene where they call for the holy hand grenade, and so then they read the instructions from the Book of Armaments on how to count before you pull the pin and lob it at your enemies, right? And so then when they go to count to do it, it's one, two, five. And so they get the number wrong, and they make a big deal about this. And it is, it is humorous. Well, a couple sermons ago, I preached out of Philippians 3, and apparently I kept saying chapter 2, 
or I kept going back and forth. And so I was harassed greatly in my household for my failure. And this morning I'm concerned it could happen again because I spend a lot of time, like a lot of us do, I'm sure, reading Paul. And today I have to remember to say Peter. So if you hear me saying Peter, 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 that's just because I'm reminding myself. And if you hear me say Paul, well, I beg your grace and your forgiveness ahead of time. Something I'm sure I won't get once I get home. <laughs> I've already been warned, so that's, that's not a cruel statement. Peter. We are looking at the first of Peter's epistles to the church. And I find this, uh, it's been fascinating just studying it and putting it together. But as I've looked more and more, I think one of the things Peter is doing more than anything else is trying to instill or inspire in his people that he writes to, the recipients of this letter, a sense of assurance. And it's interesting because I'm speaking with Donna Robard Oh, it's been a while now, but she said one of the things, you know who she is, she's the founder of the refuge, she's one of our members here, so she deals with ladies who come with all kinds of things they just need to work on, and one of the things they struggle with most is a sense of assurance. And I cannot help but think that that is probably generally true for most believers. Um, I know for me, in my late 20s, it was the number one issue. You know, it's, I didn't grow up in a, in a Reformed faith. Uh, came to that maybe in my early 20s. But, but, you know, you have all these different shibboleths or idols or problems, and so they fall one at a time. <laughs> and assurance was one of the last ones, and I can't say that it's always been perfect and constant since then, which our confession tells us it may not be. God may allow us to go through times of doubt to teach us a new lesson. But yet assurance is something to be strive, striven for. It's something to pursue after. And I really do believe it's an intended gift of God for his people in many, if not most, cases. And I think that's one of the things Peter here is actually aiming at to his audience here, is to reassure them. Because they have been converted, like most of the epistles, if not all, in the New Testament. They're written to the church. They're written to believers. They're written to those who've already been changed and transformed, and so they count themselves as the children of God. And yet, sometimes, especially in America, thanks to wealth and prosperity teaching, we think that once we come to faith, then life is just going to be smooth sailing. And then what happens when we have a hiccup in that plan? What happens when we come to a rough spot in that road? And then we start thinking, well, did I not believe in God? Did he not, in fact, save me? Can he not save me even in this? And Paul is writing to some people who have come to faith, but then who are facing some forms of persecution, some sorts of trials and tribulations. We don't know what they are. In fact, some people have said that Peter didn't write this because they were looking historically for a point in time at this time when, when the people of God were being officially persecuted because it seems to be a broad and general statement or something that he's trying to address. I don't think there was. I don't think we need to be looking for it because we all know, as Jesus promised, that those who, who want to live a godly Christian life will be persecuted, will suffer hard times. We know that it's consistent with Paul's teaching, and we see it here in Peter. See, he kept that straight. We, we notice that there's a consistency there, that God does bring struggles. He does tell even his people that there will be suffering, there will be trials, there will be disappointments, there will be temptations. That does not mean you're not a believer. That means your father is at work for you, in you, to accomplish his, his good purposes. And so I believe Peter here is trying to instill a greater hope in the audience. He is trying to bring them to a more settled sense of assurance, saying the troubles will come, but that's okay. 
Because it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. And so Peter, he starts right out, identifies himself as an apostle. There's no doubt really who we're dealing with. One of the twelve, Peter. <laughs> Peter's. we sometimes do, I think in reaction to Rome, try to, try to say Peter's not that special. He's just one of the twelve. But really, Peter is special. Among the early disciples, he did take a leadership role. So let's not make too much or too little of Peter. But Peter here, the apostle of Jesus Christ, and he is writing to people he describes as aliens. The ESV uses the phrase, aliens of the diaspora, which is really nothing more than a historical reference to the time when the Jews were scattered out of the promised land due to their sin and sent away to places like Babylon, maybe Assyria before that. And from Babylon had even migrated to other parts of the empire, the Roman Empire. And so they are living, even though they are citizens of Israel, in their minds they're citizens of Israel, but they're living as aliens in a foreign land. Aliens, strangers. So this historical reference, though, here, I believe Peter is applying to the church at large, even though he's writing to specifics, because he mentions five or six different cities, so this epistle was intended to be spread abroad. One other note before we move on from that, though, is it's very interesting. Peter is writing here to a group of people in what is today north-central Turkey, and this is one of those places where Paul was forbidden by God to go. I just find that fascinating. Recently went through Acts down at the women's, women's Refuge, and we came to that point where Peter on his second missionary, Paul, on his second missionary journey, was heading towards Asia, and he says, I was prevented from going there. And then he tried to get into Bithynia, but the Spirit stopped him. And so they ended up down in Troas and off, to, and off into Europe. It's just fascinating to me. Why not, Paul? Why not at that time? But instead we find out that Peter somehow has a relations with this church, with these churches. We don't know that Peter actually ever went there. He seems to say down in verse 12 that there may be others had preached the gospel there first. And I think that's fascinating. I think that's fascinating because in God's mysterious providence, it's the message that matters more than the messenger. Okay, so the word went forth. The gospel was preached. Churches were planted. And it's the power of God for the salvation of his people. One way or the other, he draws them out of darkness. He calls them to himself. And it doesn't always require the super apostle. It's ordinary people repeating their message. And in the mystery, in the providence of God, there was a church planted anyway. So these people, this situation now applied to believers who were made up probably of both Jew and Gentile, whose citizenship now rather than in Israel is in heaven, these people he's writing to, they now reside as aliens and strangers. The idea of an alien here is not a permanent residence. They're there temporarily. They are strangers in a strange place. And not only that, to make matters worse, <laughs> they're Christians. And so they just don't fit anymore in the pagan society where once they could probably relax and be a part of They just don't fit. The more and more Christian they are, the less and less they're going to fit in a pagan society. We have been protected from that for so long here in our country. We have. At one time, we were. I don't care what they say. We were a Christian or at least Christianized nation. We are not. We have slowly, sometimes faster than others, we have slipped off into a pagan society. And we, if we are believers, if you haven't experienced it yet, will. We don't fit. We don't fit. And so this could lead to doubts when, when people don't like us anymore, when we don't, they don't afford us the same level of respect maybe they used to, let alone the outright persecution because you will not go along with them, because you cannot go along with them. We are people of the book. 
We are people of God Almighty who has transformed us and who teaches us how to live and who is preparing us for heaven. So just like they did not fit, we no longer fit as we once did. And this could lead us to be in very much the same situation. And so this makes the book of Peter very appropriate for us, does it not? It's a very easy transition for application here. We are the aliens of the diaspora today, more and more so as we go along. So, that's verse 1. Verse 2, he actually picks it up at the end of verse 1 where he, and it's hard to divide this by the way because it's probably all one long sentence in the original language as Vinny had pointed out today. He transcribes this ahead of time and he found a lot of commas. Well, those probably didn't exist. It's just one run, one long run on sentence. So doing the best we can, Peter, an apostle writing to these aliens in this area of north central Turkey, continues by saying, who are chosen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, be sprinkled with his blood, and then he announces a blessing, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And so he almost starts the book with a benediction, but we will come back to that. So chosen by God, renewed by the Spirit, to the obedience of faith in Christ, included in the new covenant people, that's what it means to be sprinkled in his blood here, and then pronounces a blessing on them. And if we were to give a summary of these first two verses, we would say that Peter is writing to encourage believers to keep on running the race with perseverance in the face of trouble, whether it be persecution, resistance, or threats, but trouble brought on to them simply by being identified as Christians, identified for their faith, identified as the new creation of God. And this inevitably brings us into trouble. And one of the keys to what Peter is trying to teach them is worship. We will come back to this too, but one of the keys is worship. You want to know how to keep on keeping on? Give yourself more and more to worship. Look to God the Father. Remind yourself what he's done. And worship him. And so Peter begins in verse 3 by setting this example of worship. And so in verses 3 to 5, but he begins in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't ever get past this without thinking of Psalm 103. Can't help myself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. And on and on and on. You see what he's doing there? He's recounting the goodness of God. And, and Psalm 103, quite interestingly, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, actually begins with the same root word as Peter's using here. And I can't help but think that Peter was well-versed in his psalms. And so in his instruction, he begins with praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he, he lists these things. He's not just praising these things and listing that God is worthy to be praised, but he's actually showing us the benefits, just like in Psalm. You know, and forget none of his benefits. And he begins listing benefits of God, benefits of God for his people. And the benefits are first and foremost salvation. Now, in this, he gives us a lengthy list. He, he really does. And, and so there are different ways of preaching sermons. We, we could take this a word by word and just cover two, three words a Sunday. 
which is absolutely legitimate, and there's certainly enough depth in some of these words to do this. Okay, but I don't think that's Peter's main plan here. I think he's piling up all these words for a reason. So let's just look at some of the words here briefly, because it actually begins at the end of verse 2. Uh, it includes, it actually includes, uh, the, starting at the end of verse 1, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Let's just take these briefly. Chosen. Let's just find my place in my notes because I've done run on ahead. God, Peter speaks of what God has done, of what God is doing. And so let's look at some of the specifics. One, we'll just start right there in verse 3. God, who according to his great mercy, according to his mercy, do you see right there that puts us in the, in the, in the gathering, in the numbers of the unworthy. <laughs> we had no claim on God's goodness. But yet, according to his mercy, what has he done? He has caused us to be born again. Look at the tense of the verb. He has caused us to be born again. You can't make yourself be born the first time. You can't make yourself be born again. At God's, it's at God's command. And in his mercy, he does so. He causes us to be born again through the resurrection of Christ. Now, he did not take the time to spell out the entire work of Christ here, but you should look at the resurrection of Christ as if it is representative of the whole. That he came, took on the form of man, led a life of suffering, gave himself a sacrifice to reconcile us to God, was put in the ground and on the third day rose from the dead, ascended into heaven where he sits at God's right hand praying for you now. All this summed up in what he's saying in the resurrection from the dead. So he, God has done this. He has done this in the person of Christ. And he has done all of this. Now we're backing up a little bit according to God's foreknowledge. Now some people like to talk. Here's one we could spend all morning on and we won't. But some people like to talk about foreknowledge as God looking through the corridors of time to see what you're going to do. And then if you will trust in him, he will save you. That is a human-centered salvation. And that is not what foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge comes with it, the sense of intent on God's part. And it points to the predetermined plan of God, the predetermined choosing of individuals whom God has set his love upon from before the foundation of the earth to be called to himself. So according to the foreknowledge of God and choosing a people for himself and appointing them to salvation. And I know we could go on, but we're going to keep moving because this is not Peter's primary intent. He does this. He does all this work by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is the Spirit applying to individuals whom God has chosen all the benefits of the redemption which Christ has purchased by his work by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and then unto glorification. He doesn't save us and then quit on us. He doesn't save us and set us loose. Part of your salvation includes your future glorification. And just as surely as he has saved you, he will keep you. Now, where do we see this? We drop down to verse 4. You have been saved. You've been given this living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith. So again, we look at some words, unto glorification. Glorification isn't there, but that's what's represented by the idea of an inheritance. There's a future laid out for you. It really is amazing. We deserve nothing. And yet God saves us and promises us great reward, even though he's the one that keeps us walking on the path. It's amazing. 
It's glorification. It's an inheritance in the future. We've given three words. These words summed up just means that this inheritance is indestructible. It cannot be destroyed. You won't get there and find it all crumbled and in a pile of dust. It is also uncorruptible. It will not... What did Jesus say? Don't lay up your treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy. It's indestructible. It can't be destroyed. It's uncorruptible. And then it's unfading because the flower fades or the grass fades and the flower withers. But your inheritance lasts forever. It doesn't fade. And I cannot help but think one more time that Peter here is thinking of the Psalms. Because Psalm 1611 in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forever. Fullness forever. There's your inheritance. Now what form does our inheritance take? What does it look like? I don't have the faintest idea. I don't have the faintest idea. First and foremost, God is our inheritance. The Lord Jesus Christ who saved you. It is dwelling forever in the presence of absolute goodness who has proven his love throughout the centuries by calling people to himself. What could be better? That which we see darkly now, we will see so clearly then. That which is but a a shadow, you're going to see face to face and in reality. That is your inheritance. Whatever it looks like in the specifics. The Bible talks about a garden. The Bible talks about a city. The Bible talks about clouds and a worship service. The Bible gives us all these images. It's going to be great and it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be better than what it pictures. And yet we don't know exactly the form it will take. But oh, it's going to be good. Fullness. And forever, unfading. That's your inheritance. And not only that, he goes on to assure them even more that it is kept, reserved in heaven, or kept in heaven for you. And, and, and that's wonderful to hear. This is all set aside there, but what if I don't get there? What if I don't make it? But it's kept there for you, who are protected by the power of God, for this salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Protected. That's a military term. He's guarding you even now. You're not accidentally going to fall off the path. You're going to walk the path God's laid out for you. You're going to be empowered to deal with everything that comes up. There are going to be times, like Paul says, I meant that, there's going to be times, like Paul says, when we are crushed, we feel crushed but not destroyed. Because you are being guarded and protected by the power of God because the end has been determined just like your salvation has been determined. The accomplishment of your salvation should give you this great hope that the end is yours as well. You should have great confidence. Now, that's some of the specifics, which, as you can tell, takes a great deal of time. So we're not going to spend more there. Let me just tell you what I think Peter's after. I think Peter wasn't wanting to get bogged down in the weeds, but he wanted to give you enough to inspire confidence. But in this picture, this whole picture that he's drawing, what he's telling you is that God's salvation for his people is a complete salvation. It's a complete salvation. He didn't forget something. He didn't leave a piece out. I get so aggravated at work. We go to deliver a finished room full of cabinets to a customer down in the Keys. We get a phone call. Where's that last piece? I hate that. <laughs> we'll get it there. We'll get it there. We're sorry. Okay. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He has determined your salvation. He has determined your end. He has determined your path and he guards you on the way. In fact, Jesus said, remember, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always. And we have in us the Spirit of Christ who directs us, who teaches us, who guides us, who keeps us. And we will get home. 
We will get home. It is a complete salvation. We add nothing to it. We receive everything, all through faith. And even that faith is not something you add because faith itself is a gift of God. This ability to believe and receive is a gift of God. I think most people, most people, many people stumble over a sense of assurance because they're still reserving in their minds that they have to do something to finish it. You know, it's wonderful what God has done. Now, what do I have to do? Where do I have to go? What do I have to say? What do I have to believe? Do I have to have my quiet times, morning and night, or will mornings be enough? Can I divide the time out through the day? No, that's not adding. You add nothing. Peter is saying it's a complete salvation. Man, if you got nothing else out of this this morning, a complete salvation. Say it with me. A complete salvation. You add nothing. You add nothing. Now, I want to go back briefly just to pick up a phrase we skimmed over. Verse 3, a living hope. You've been born again to a living hope. Now, it's true that our hope is a living hope because our Savior is a living Savior, which is wonderful because if our salvation rests upon the work of Christ and Christ is yet dead and stayed dead, then what's our hope on? A dead Savior. But our hope is in a living Savior who God raised from the dead, and who sits at his right hand. So that's one way to understand living hope, but I don't think that's what Peter's saying. We have a living hope. Just like faith, a living faith produces what? Works, good works. We do not do good works. We do, not, we do good works. We don't produce them ourselves. A living faith produces good works. A living hope produces what? what? There's a key word here. Joy. This living hope, based on the goodness of God and a complete salvation, produces in us joy. And that's where Peter goes as he continues his letter. He says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. We drop down to verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Speaking of Jesus, whom we have not seen. We believe the message because God has made us believe the message. But having believed the message, what's the response? You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Full of glory. Great phrase. Full of glory. Glory speaks of the glory of heaven. You know, as we've been reading Revelation and all those visions we've seen of God on the throne, surrounded by the sea and the elders and all the living creatures, always crying out, holy, holy, holy. That's glory. And the joy we experience is a taste of that glory. And so the more joy that we know in this life, the more glory, <laughs> the more of heaven that you feast upon in this joy. Now, do you add this joy? Do you somehow do something to scramble after and produce this joy? No, 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 no. This joy is the result of a living hope. And this hope is based upon the work of God and the complete salvation for his people. That's where this joy comes from. We don't produce it. As living faith produces work, so living hope produces joy. And we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. This is to be a characteristic of God's people. And the more we know of this joy in this life, the more we taste of the heavenly glory and display that heavenly glory in a pagan world. We display it. And it will overflow 
to the glory and worship of God in the last day. So, what is joy? I mean, that sounds important. Sounds important. What is joy? We should know what that looks like. We should know what that is. Well, joy is like happiness. I mean, it's, you look it up even in, a, in your average dictionary. Joy and happiness seem to kind of go hand in hand, but they're not. Let me make a distinction. Happiness is kind of like those uh, cheap, shallow, sentimental, temporary temporary. It doesn't last very long, at least for most of us. Not, not for me. I'm not a happy person. I'd like that to think because I'm not a light, shallow, you know, whatever, but that's not true. I'm just, that's my personality. I'm not a happy person. But happiness itself tends to be more cheap, more shallow, more temporary, more sentimental, maybe the warm and fuzzies. You feel happy today. The weather's nice, cool breeze, whatever, whatever. But that is not joy. Joy differs from happiness in quality and degree. Joy, I would say, doesn't necessarily look like the smile on the face, although it may. Joy does not necessarily issue forth always in songs, but it may. But joy is a certain underlying steadiness, firmness. It's consistent. It's not nearly as temporary and fleeting. It's there. It's a foundational, robust delight. See, that's a big difference, isn't it? Okay. Now, do we have that all the time? No. And to be honest, if the Bible said, <laughs> you know, come to Jesus and you'll be joyful and happy all the time, then I'd have a hard time believing that. And in fact, if I met somebody that was always, in fact, I knew a lady that was so bubbly, I thought she, she's like, got to be the biggest fraud. Now, see, that's me. That's me. I'm very cynical, <laughs> very judgmental. This woman was bubbly and shy. I mean, it wouldn't matter if you just ran over her puppy. She would be like, oh, well, that's wonderful. Smile on her face. Let me make you cookies. And I just couldn't stand it. Just couldn't stand it. That's just not me. But see, that's, that's more happy. If the Bible presented joy like that, I would say, well, then the Bible doesn't present life as it really is, does it? And so it would make me skeptical. But Peter doesn't speak that way. Thank goodness. He says in verse... Six, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. See, the fact is that we don't live in heaven yet. And the joy that we experience may be a taste of heaven, but it is not the fullness of it. Because we live in this time, in this overlap of ages, where Christ has come, the kingdom has arrived, but the kingdom is not in fullness. And so neither is your experience of kingdom. That doesn't mean your experience is not real. It means it's not finished. And so the joy may not be constant, may not be continuous, but it's there. And it can be an underlying foundation, should be an underlying foundation, because even in the midst of the greatest darkness, God has still worked out for you a complete salvation. That includes a future, which, like that, that goal, that finish line that you can't miss. You can't help but cross. And that gives you hope. Not wishful thinking like, I hope it rains M&Ms this afternoon. But hope... Trusting in the solid foundation of the promises of God spelled out in the Word of God. Not platitudes. Not some lightweight, you know, self-help bumper sticker saying. The promises of God should give you great hope. And hope produces joy. But it's not unrealistic. There will be trouble in this overlap of the ages. And these trials are all part of the plan of God. See, I feel sorry for an unbeliever who suffers, and he just suffers. He, for, for them, they're actually having a taste of the judgment to come. But for the believer, when you suffer, you ought to praise God, your Father, because he's paying close attention to you and is doing whatever it takes 
to prepare you for heaven. The sufferings of God, the trials that we experience even now, of which our joy can underlie anyway, are purposeful. They are purposeful. They, they, they wean us from sin. They show us the, the wickedness of sin so that we won't cherish it any longer because we know there's a cost. <laughs> okay? In all these ways, our Father is developing us. He is, he is burning out of us the imperfections, which is one reason they, they compare this, this underlying joy and, and faith the reality of your faith as being like pure gold, but more valuable. Okay, but he is, he is burning some things out of us. In some ways, he's weaning us and preparing us for the life to come. That's all he's Yes, we get old. In fact, Wednesday, my grandfather turns 97. My grandfather was a man's man. I mean, robust, strong, attacked everything he ever set out to do. I mean, a man's man. I miss that. I miss it. I aspire to it. I fall so short. But a man's man. But boy, today, to see him, he's a shriveled man. You know, if he gets up wrong, he cracks his back. And I mean breaks it. Weak. He's being weaned from this life so that it doesn't remain too affectionate to the things of this world. And he's more and more prepared for the things of the world to come because we're taught to let go. That can be some of the purpose in the sufferings that God takes you through. He weans you from life. He, turns, he changes your appetites so you no longer desire the thing that you used to desire that led you down the wrong path. And if it takes a harshness or a firmness to get you there, he'll do it. It's not an abusive father. He's a good father working out the end result for you. That's what your trials are. You know, so the trials, when we receive, when we experience them, that is not the occasion to doubt in God's goodness. They actually, for God's people, prove His goodness because He is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure and for your good. He's preparing you for something better. And so, we hope and we rejoice even in our trials because the trials themselves are proofs in the goodness of God. For his children. So we're not just joyful in the trial. We're actually joyful because of them. And so there's just joy upon joy. Not some light fanciful feeling. of rock solid confidence in the goodness of God. You know I think that was probably the first sin. Is a failure to believe in the goodness of God. God said trust me. Don't eat from the tree in the center. But you can have all of this. But where did they, they wanted the one he said no to. And so when Satan comes along and says, did God really say this? I mean, he, he introduces this doubt in God's goodness. Why would God do that and tell you not to have that one? I mean, he's just a killjoy. He's just maintaining some little bit of control over you. And in doubting God's goodness, then they sin and plunge the whole world into darkness. But don't we do it? Don't we doubt the essential goodness of God? And Peter is pointing them to the, not just the essential goodness of God. God is good. It is who He is. But God has displayed it in His work on your behalf. He has set His love upon you from the foundation of the world, from eternity past. And He is going to continue loving you and working for your good and His glory to eternity future. And there's an inheritance reserved for you. He doesn't just put you on the path. He keeps you on the path. He gets you there. So we're not joyful in our trials, but because of them, 
God is at work in his children, and in this we greatly rejoice. Verse 9 brings us to our conclusion. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I don't like the word obtaining there, and actually I don't think it's the best translation. It's not just that I don't like it. I think it's probably better off receiving as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word outcome is a Greek word for telos, like teleology. It has to do with sort of philosophy, like what's the end goal of all things. And so receiving... The end goal of all things, the salvation of your soul. Now you have received your salvation. You are for completely forgiven of your sins. It's a complete salvation, but there's oh so much glory to still have. And you will receive it. Receiving as the goal, as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your souls here, this is not just a spiritual salvation. Some people think that, you know, the, the spirit is good and the physical is bad, and so we finally leave the bodies aside and we'll all just be these, these uh, disentangled or disattached spirits floating around in heaven. No, that's not how God intended it. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that just as Christ was raised, so we will be raised. Our bodies will be redeemed as well. Soul here, just like when God created Adam breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the dust and the spirit became a living soul, a living being. This is a full and complete salvation, not just of your spirits, but of your bodies as well, which will somehow mysteriously be like unto his glorious body. It's a complete salvation. It gives us a living hope, which gives us joy, even in the midst of trials. I want to repeat one last thing. It's not dependent on you. Do we take part? Certainly. Do we give great effort? You should. How how can we have tasted the goodness of God and not want more? You know, when somebody actually puts in front of me a great meal, (laughs) and I take that first bite, and I'm like, wow. No, here, you keep it. (laughs) No, I really dive in. I really dive in. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And feast yourself upon His goodness. And while I didn't plan it, boy, does that turn to the table well. God is good. It's a complete salvation. God is good. Let's pray. Father God, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would apply it to each individual here. Lord, give us this hope that gives joy, that we might not only experience your glory, but display your glory to a pagan world. Lord, build your people up into faith, we pray, and we look forward to sharing this table with you this morning as well. Just a taste of your goodness. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.